I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Have you watched Reservation Dogs yet? It's a pretty incredible show. It was one of those shows that people were telling me I had to watch, and I I kept, you know, I meant to watch it, you know, those kind of shows. And then I didn't actually start watching it until the second season was out, and I I mean, I should have been watching it from the get-go. It's really incredible. I mean, right from the get-go, right from when it started, it started getting named to those, like, best-of-TV lists. And those lists, which I'm generally suspicious of, they were right in this case. If you're not as familiar with Reservation Dogs, or you're like I was and you had heard of it, it's about the lives of four indigenous teenagers. And here's the thing about it. Reservation Dogs is about things like grief, complicated family dynamics, colonialism, indigenous identity. But, like, it's very, very funny. It's very, very artful. And it really hits you a few times in every episode. Like, I found myself watching it and pausing it sometimes just so I could sit with what I just saw and what I just laughed at. And in addition to being hilarious and and moving, Reservation Dogs has also been talked about as the show that changed the way that indigenous people are portrayed, especially on American TV. Here's why we're talking about the show right now. The episodes that just aired conclude the show's final season, the third and final season. Now, I should tell you, the show wasn't canceled or anything like that. Uh, The show's creator, Sterling Harjo, decided it was time for the show to wrap up. But the person who directed two episodes of the very last season is a Canadian, someone you might have heard on cue before, Dennis Goulet. Dennis is a Cree Métis filmmaker from Saskatchewan. Last time she was on for her was for her film Night Raiders, which used like a futuristic Blade Runner style film to talk about colonialism. And for Reservation Dogs, she did a sort of a genre thing again. She directed the episode Deer Lady, which uses the Deer Lady figure, which is a figure that shows up in a lot of indigenous folklore, as a way to talk about residential schools through the lens of classic horror movies. Here's my conversation with Dennis Goulet. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. We just realized that you were on before. Yeah. And because when you came in, I was like, oh, yeah, we've talked before. But, yeah. But we, I, but we had never met before because we did one of those Zoom interviews. I know. I don't really miss those. <laughs> me neither. This is this is much better. Way better. I heard when you, it wasn't until you went down to film the show that you knew that the show was ending. Yeah, I went down there and Sterling was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is the last season. And I was like, of course, my first reaction was like, no, say it isn't so. Like, it's so loved in our communities, like all across North America. But then to see it so embraced in such a wide way was so thrilling. And so it felt like a loss. But, you know, I think he really wanted to end the show on his own terms. And he felt like the storytelling had naturally come to a close. And so he was like, this is what I want to do. It's it's worth mentioning that Sterling, uh, Sterling Harjo, we're talking about, the creator of the show, yeah, wanted to end it on his own terms. The show did not get canceled. I mean, that's a, no. that's, that's a rare thing. Yeah, no, it is. And I think it's really nice to see creatives that recognize when a show has come to its natural finish, because a lot of times in TV, if it's successful, they're going to squeeze every last drop out of it. Yeah. And so I really commend them for making that, like, it, it's totally for creative reasons. And uh, I'm so glad that everyone was on board with that. 
What did you think of the show before you worked on it? I loved it. I, you know, it it very much like Sterling's voice. It balances light and dark. It's not afraid to go to the tough places. And yet it showcases our humor and that beautiful love that is at the center of our communities that has to do with survival. And yes, it goes to all of the places of, you know, what it is like to live as colonized people on our own land. And yet it has so much joy and love and spirit in the show. And I just loved it from the get-go. Here's what I find interesting about that. So I've I've read interviews with Sterlin, and he said things like, I wanted this to be as specific to the Oklahoma indigenous like experience as possible. And I have also and you're you're Cree Métis from Saskatchewan. I've also heard from folks like you who are like, you know, indigenous folks who are not from Oklahoma being like I see myself in this very specific story that he wrote. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm a huge believer that the more specific something is, the more universal it becomes. But I think us as Indigenous nations, you know, there's like hyper specificity to each community. Like you go just down the road at the next community and they're going to have different cultural protocols than the one you're in. And at the same time, I think we're all unified by a very similar experience. And I also think that there are kind of like unifying cultural traits that you can identify that cross communities. Like the first episode that I ever did was called Mabel, and it takes place um, during the death of one of the characters' grandmothers. And the experience of being at a wake in, you know, our home communities and what those feel like and what happens at them, mm. even though there might be specificity differences, it's like the feeling of it. It was very similar. Did you, did you find similarities in like the sense of humor? Yeah, absolutely. And we talked about that right away. It was like, oh, you go to one of our funerals, there's going to be laughing like through the whole thing. And that's how it is on the Cree Métis side of my family. You know, it's like there is a lot of joy, even at sad times. So uh, I want to talk about your work on this season. You directed two episodes, the season premiere and an episode called Dear Lady. And Dear Lady made a lot of news. It sure did. (laughs) It made a lot of news when it came out, Dennis. Um, Before we get into the episode, I think we should just set up who, who Dear Lady is. I mean, Dear Lady is a figure that comes up uh, in a lot of indigenous cultures in in North America. Can you tell me a little bit about who Dear Lady is? Yeah, Dear Lady is like the supernatural figure. And she's like this, I mean, in Res Dog, she's very much conceived as this sort of like badass renegade there to right wrongs. And she specifically goes after men who commit offenses against women. um, And she is there to like get justice make sure that it's put in its place. But like, she is, you know, she's an evil care. Like she can be bad. Like she kills people. So she will hunt down men that have mistreated women. And in this episode, there's reference to bad women as well. But she is a renegade there to right wrongs, you know, and she's a, a character that comes from the old stories. So she's also shows up in many different nations storytelling. I, I love the way you depicted Dear Lady here in this. So like, I was gonna set up a clip right now. So this is Dear Lady talking to Bear one of the four main characters uh, in the show. He's a teenager who's found himself lost in California after missing a bus ride home. He meets Dear Lady in a diner. Take a listen to this. So you're really real. Real? Well, do I look real? I mean, yeah. You want to touch my hooves? Definitely not. So what then? You heard of me your whole life. Yeah. What do you think I was fake? Think I was make-believe? I, I just thought it was a story to keep all the uncles in line. 
Yeah, well, some uncles they want stories to keep them in line. Those are the ones that I visit. So your version of Dear Lady is very cool. She's played by the very cool Gandio Horn, a uh, Mohawk actor from Ganawage First Nation in Quebec. Long suede coat, sunglasses. Why did you want to make her cool? Well, she had actually been already established in earlier seasons. So she came into this episode as already a loved character. And they had already sort of given her these like, you know, um, kind of like these 70s aesthetics of like the renegades at the times or whatever. And um, so that was sort of already established. But when I read the episode, I also just felt like this very much could lean in a genre direction and in a horror direction. And so we should lean into like the 70s kind of like thing that's already been set up for her. But um, no one does cooler better than Ganya Diohorn. And she finds, so she was like in that scene, like a little cat just batting around a mouse. And it was so satisfying to watch her every micro expression, a shift in her body language or her tone. I mean, she is just at the top of her game as an actor. And it was such a joy to be down there with her, working with her. I'd never worked with her before, so I was really excited about this opportunity. And she is so much of the reason why this episode is so incredible. She is cool. Yeah. Incredibly, incredibly cool. Very cool. And very cool in this episode as well. Yeah. What went through your mind, Dennis, when you found out that the episode you'd be working on would be an an episode that talked about the trauma of residential schools, or as they're called in, in the U.S., boarding schools? Yeah, I mean, I was, it's such an intense topic and one that I've dealt with in my previous work. And so it just requires a lot of extra thought and care to go into how you're going to handle it. I think working in genre gives you a bit more freedom. And so I think that's why that always appeals to me, because it is a tough topic to tackle. And so I was concerned about a lot of things and, you know, how to do it in the right way was probably the most pressure of tackling something like that. What does that mean, doing it the right way? Well, I think, you know, um, because when actors in our communities reenact these things, it's like they're reenacting real history and real traumas in their own family. So um, the young child actors, I mean, there's violence against children depicted in this. And this is something that is, is not far away history. It's very recent living history in our families. And the other pressure I felt was it was kind of the first time that network television in the U.S. on such a big platform had really tackled this before. I mean, I think other shows had maybe touched upon it, but it's like, how do you introduce this to an audience that is unfamiliar with this? And when it comes to the depiction of violence against children, I think there's a line that you have to think deeply and carefully about, about how much is too much, and yet how do you honor and hold the truth of what happened at the same time. So all of that was weighing very heavily on me as we shot the episode. There was a decision in the in the in the making of this that I was curious about. So the nuns and like teachers at the residential school, uh, when they speak, it's with this sort of like so what I thought was like a garbled sound. It, you yeah. Know, and then I read online. People were speculating that it was they were speaking English lines, but the, they had been reversed, like the audio had been reversed. 
Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So it was always scripted as they speak in gibberish. Okay. And part of that is because I think, well, to me immediately, I went to like horror movie zone of like how scary that can sound. Demonic. Yeah. yeah. Like really freaky. But also that, the, you know, we really wanted to be in the kids POV. And so they would all be Kiowa speakers. And so they're listening to English for the first time, and it sounds like gibberish, you know, the way it would. And so that's where the choice came from. But when we were actually thinking about how do we execute this, you know, we were like, oh, we could just mess with it in post, but then it's not going to match the way their lips are moving. So we ended up, it was actually the DOP that was like, do the David Lynch like reverse English thing. Oh, and like so, in Twin Peaks. Yes. Yeah. And so we we wrote it out in English and then did this app that switched it around and then had the actors memorize the switched around version, like the reversed English version, and then perform that on the day, which was super weird. <laughs> it sounds pretty challenging too. Yeah, I mean they did great with it. It yeah. was kind it was kind of amazing. Um the other challenge was um, shooting in the Kiowa language with the kids because it's endangered and there are less than, I, I don't know, I think 40, 20, I think. yeah, less than 40 yeah. speakers left in the world. And so we were so lucky to have an amazing Kiowa language consultant, but it, again, pressures on the schedule. <laughs> How do you make sure when there's, when there's under 40 Kiowa speakers and you have, you have folks in this language, in this show who need to speak that language, like as a director, how do you make sure you do that right? Yeah, I mean, by having the people that know. So Warren, um, who was, he also was an actor in the show. He appears in the very next episode, but he is an incredible Kiowa language speaker and expert. And so um, the young dear lady um, w was actually, came from a Kiowa family. So she was a language learner herself and had that support of her family. But on set, we have Warren there with us, like sometimes helping with pronunciation, sometimes throwing lines out, sometimes coaching them, like all the things to get that right. It was really effective, the reverse language, like the gibberish kind of reverse language from the from the nuns and the teachers. Because, yeah, so scary. I mean, and, and so like this this betrays some ignorance on my part that like in all the reading and all the watching and all the you know, thinking and learning I've, I've, I've done about the residential school, you know, trauma and tragedy in, in this country and in the U.S., I had never thought that when these kids showed up at the school, they just didn't understand the language that people were, were yelling at them. Yeah, absolutely. So they, they just understand that they're being yelled at, but sometimes don't even know what for. Zahili Kipsi! Yeah, it was really effective. It was terrifying in the, in the show. Yeah, well, that is credit to Sterling. He wrote it that way, but I agree. <laughs> um, there, there's a there's a scene where um, there's like a haircutting scene when the kids are, are brought into the boarding school to the residential school, and uh, the the boy students are brought in to get their hair cut. And I, I read an interview where you said you could hear a pin drop during the filming of that scene. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it was really, really intense because hair has a lot of meaning in many different indigenous cultures. Um, in some cultures, they only cut their hair in mourning. And so it has really particular meaning. And of course, we know that one of the first things that happened is the kids get rolled in and they all get their hair cut. One of the big questions about how to do this that was weighing heavily on this is like, do we put them in wigs or do we cut 
real hair. And um, that was a question that remained alive for a long time before the decision was made. But we ended up finding a young man, Adam Maker, who was had long, long hair, and he had planned to cut his hair short anyway. And so once that kind of was open to us. We thought, well, would he then do it for the show? And there were conversations with his parents. It was so important that we knew that his family was there to support him in that process. And so part of what was so intense about the scene and all of us being there together was, of course, bearing witness to something very traumatic, but also the fact that this young man had decided to sacrifice his own hair in the cutting of the scene for real. And so it was really emotional and very meaningful to be there for all of us in that moment. Right. As emotional as it was for us to be watching it, you're saying that like on set, just watching this young man make this decision to make the sacrifice, you could feel it on set. Oh, yeah. I felt like there was a collective breath being held. Like it was so quiet in the room and so like honoring and respectful and everyone was right there with it. And we were also shooting it as a oneer, so we were playing the, like as a one shot that okay. plays so it means that you do a full take from beginning to end and the hair only gets cut once. And so it also just adds this sort of like um yeah, the whole thing. But the crew is incredible down there. And so, um, you know, after it was done, there was like this palpable relief, you know. And even Adam, he was like jumping around at lunchtime, you know, like with his newly shortened hair. <laughs> Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Dakota Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Dakota Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Dakota Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. I'm Tom Power. You're in the middle of my conversation with Danis Goulet. We've been talking about her work on the third and final season of the TV show Reservation Dogs. Here's part two of my conversation with Danis Goulet. I mean, it, mu- it must be it must be meaningful, right? Because I mean, this has come up in the conversation around Reservation Dogs before. All Indigenous team of writers and directors behind the scenes. There, there must be meaning shooting that scene or any any of these scenes, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, knowing that pretty much everybody in that room has some kind of connection to the subject matter. Yeah, and the, like all of the writers are Native, and so, you know, and, and all the whole directing team is too, but there's a lot of crew that are as well, and so one of the crew members right before we shot had actually been through that very experience of going to a boarding school and getting his own haircut, and he spoke to everybody before we shot that scene, and so... Yeah, it really has a lot of meaning to make it with the people that have that firsthand experience. Gee, well, what was that like for you when he did that? Uh, it was, in, I mean, we, I think the whole room was in tears when he shared his experience. It was really emotional. And I just thought it was so brave. And I felt so honored to be there with everybody um, to share. Because it feels like when we're all holding this together in the right way, we hope what it's doing is healing. You know, it's like we share our stories, there's catharsis. And um, I was just very honored to be there with him and to share it with that with the crew. 
When I said it made some news, Dennis, you went, oh, yeah, it did. (laughs) Well, I just felt like suddenly when that episode came up, um, it was just everywhere. And um, there was so much press interest in it. Like I was sort of like, oh, the U.S. hasn't really like boarding schools hasn't really seemed to have hit their radar in the same way. Like they haven't had a truth and reconciliation process. And so I had no idea what the reaction would be. And it was so big. And then I got a text from Sterling. He's like, "Uh, hey, our episode's blowing up the Internet. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, I I heard. You're going viral. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. (laughs) I, I think I understand what you mean by that, that like in Canada, we'll say like very, very recently, there has been more and more film and TV work done and just like general knowledge done around truth and reconciliation around the, you know, the, the legacy and, and tragedy of, of Canada's residential schools. And what you're saying is that like, not to generalize, but a lot of folks in America who would be watching the show on TV, they would have learned about this through this episode. Yeah. And also it's not in the news down there in the same way, like they just haven't grappled with the history yet. So there's a process now in place to really grapple with what happened at boarding schools. But I I think the visibility just isn't what it is um, in the U.S. And so, yeah, like this could be people's entry point into the topic at all. And so a lot of the press, when I was, you know, talking about the show, I mean, uh, that really was a huge part of why people wanted to get into it. I mean, people people were asking you questions like, did this really happen or like that kind no, of thing? No, it wasn't that. It wasn't like that, but it was just like, wow, this history, like we've never really seen this done before. Like, you know, and just really wanting to get into it and, you know, watching sort of like, like a Hollywood Reporter article, for example, that would normally just be on the entertainment side, like starting an article that talks all about boarding school history. And that was really cool, you know, to to be a part of like bringing something to light in that way. I mean, speaking of impact, like as a, as a filmmaker, like uh, Reservation Dogs, is, is this going to be something that opens the doors, that just opens the floodgates? Yeah, I, I I hope so. Do you mean for me or for all of us? I mean, you can take it which way, whichever way you want. For you, for new Indigenous filmmakers coming up? Well, first off, for me, it was a huge opportunity. I mean, this is my first chance to work in U.S. television and actually on a television show at all. And so to have that opportunity for me, you know, coming out of independent film where I've kind of grown up as a filmmaker, um, it was really exciting and a really big step. So I felt so grateful for that. But also that the show has like blown open Native representation in the U.S. And, you know, to have this show go so wide and so far, I mean, it and it brought with it kind of a critical mass of writers and directors. And I think for those of us who've been around for like a couple decades now, we've seen like these little poofs of success where like representation happens and we all celebrate it, but then it kind of like those doors close up again. Right, right, um, right. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like, yay, Atanarju at the Fast Runner, like back in the beginning of yeah. the 2000s should change everything. Right. And then it, it, you know, it's like, that was an amazing one-off or like Taika's career or like our grandmother, Alanisa Bompsawin, like yeah. she's been making this stuff since oh, this, forever. Oh, this is going to happen now. Yeah, this should happen for, for more of us. And for so long, it wasn't happening for more more of us. And I think what Reservation Dogs does is it proves that something, it's like set a new bar and it's just like totally blown it all open. And it's shown what happens when you actually empower Indigenous people to tell our own stories. Well, it's a great show. It's a great show. 
Yeah, thank you. I I loved being a part of it. Yeah, and you, your your episodes are fantastic as as well. Thank like you. Like when you when you look back on it, like what's what's the like the most joyful kind of happiest memory you have of your time working on that show? Oh my god, I actually loved my very first episode that I did um, with Devry Jacobs because uh, she's again such an incredible. They poach so many Canadians to go down <laughs> on that show, but it was really special because it was an episode where everybody was in it, and it was so communal, and so it was like this big community episode and uh yeah just so much laughter you know like so so many times we're just busting a gut like where I'm like tears coming down my face because I'm trying not to laugh and ruin the take and um that's an incredible thing to be a part of and I think the show is not just changing representation and what ends up on screen, you know, Sterling's really charting a new way forward in terms of showing how things can get made in a way that is like warm and loving and like driven by values where it doesn't have to be old school film hierarchy where it's like you're making a product and you're the director of the week and it's like you're the boss and you got, you know, it's like really a different environment and a different method. And I loved every minute of being a part of it. Well, thanks for coming in. Yeah, thank you. Nice to meet you in real life. Same. Nice to not have to do this over the internet. For sure. Anytime. Yes, I love it. I never want to be on Zoom again. No, me neither. (laughs) (laughs) Let's never go on Zoom again. (laughs) Dennis Goulet is a Cree Metis film and TV director. She joined me here in our studio. Not on Zoom. Not on Zoom. You can watch all three seasons of Reservation Dogs on Disney Plus in Canada and on Hulu in the U.S. Um, thanks a lot to Dennis for coming in. The other conversation we have on today is uh, one of the greatest talk show guests in Canadian history. Uh, Jan Arden wrote a novel called The Biddlemores. I, I tell her off the top of the interview, I'm honest with her, that when I saw that she wrote a novel, like musician writes a novel, I didn't have high hopes. It is so good. It is so readable. Um, and it's a really interesting novel about why we should have compassion for the people we like the least. Go check that out. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.